we begin to think about hope, when we begin to think about Christmas and all that it has for us, our mind goes to what we are hoping for currently, right? It's pretty um, common thing, I think, for all of us at Christmas, especially for children and young children, to uh, have special hopes and dreams about the Christmas season. One of the things that many of them have learned to hope for during this season is to hope that that little guy that's watching them falls off of wherever he's perched and breaks his neck. You know that little, what's that thing they call? The little elf guy. The elf guy's a tattletale and I don't like him. I'm like the little kids. I want to go by and steal him off the wall, but my family insists on using the elf to keep the wildness to a dim uh, roar around the house. I understand that part, but I'm so glad that God is not like the little elf, not like hanging on a wall waiting for us to mess up. And yet that image that is in the children sometimes helps them to behave, I'll grant you that. But our hopes are on more than, their hopes are on more than not just what the elf will see or not see. Their hope is on visions in their heads of the thing they're hoping for. And you know, even as we grow older, I don't think we lose that capacity to hope and to dream, not just at Christmas time, but in all times. One of the ways that we hope, I think, as we think about that is that we hope for things like good health. We hope for things like a happy holiday with our family members. We hope for things like the blessings of a good job and an occupation, for prosperity, if you will, even that. Yes, we do. We hope for that. We hope for peace and we hope for joy. We hope for a comfortable kind of lifestyle, if you will. In a long and short way, we hope for security. It's normal for people to hope for such things. They hope to see their children grow up and be healthy and strong and make wise decisions. And as they get older, they hope for their grandchildren to listen to the words of the faith and to be a part of the church, to have, be blessed and have good health. And people, we spend a good deal of our time praying and worrying about all those things. And all of those things are good. And they are appropriate objects for us to hope for in our lives. But when we hope in God, we also hope for deeper things. We hope for changed hearts. We hope for enlightened minds. We hope that the sense of love that we have for others can be expressed in a way that will have an impact on other people's lives. We hope for many, many things. And we're good at thinking about that. But, you know, the Christian faith is built upon the realization that our hope is in the character, dependability, and ability of God. God is worthy of our trust. God is love. And that active love that God practices is most clearly expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who we will celebrate today when we receive Holy Communion. Jesus expresses that same love of the Father and our Creator by giving himself, by making his life a reflection of his relationship with the Father, a life that, again, is characterized by love, a love that hopes that through loving encounters with others, they might be, translate, they might be transformed to a life of hope because of the faith they find in Jesus Christ. Jesus practiced and continues to practice forgiveness, grace, and encouragement so that we may be one with God even in this world and even as Jesus was one. What a broad hope. We're good at hoping, right? We're good at dreaming. But what if we flip the question this morning?
What if we flip the question of the promise of hope from what we hope for and look at hope from a different direction? What is it that God hopes for? What is it that God longs for when he looks down at his creation and at his world? I think when we look at hope from God's perspective, perspective, we might struggle a little bit. And yet I think that Paul gives us two really good hints in this scriptures just read. For here is Paul thanking God for particular characteristics in these people at the church at Philippi that he wants to lift up to them and encourage them in. I don't believe it's just Paul's hope for them, but rather I believe it's God's hope for them, that what he's expressing to them also is the hope that God has for each and every one of us. Yes, even our small children. But now this passage is not easy sledding, nor is it lightweight Christmas material, but rather it is heavy material. What does God hope for us? He says it right out loud, that we might be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about that, we immediately jump in Western traditions to the idea of, of perfection, Christian perfection, perfect in righteousness. And then we begin to think about all the human thoughts that run our minds. This idea of, per- of perfection is really a struggle, right? Right? Right. It's difficult. We know that we're all sinners, so therefore, how can we all be perfect? We know that salvation is a process, so it's always relative to our past and hopeful for the future. We never quite fully arrive being transformed and changed into the image of Christ, even when we become perfected in the Wesleyan theological sense. Because even then, God continues to work on us as long as we're alive. So if perfection is so relative, how then can he be praying for them to become a perfect, blameless people? How then, when we're so aware of our shortcomings, so aware of the relativeness of this idea and attainment to some kind of standing in Christ and standing in the world, how can we really and truly hope for that kind of righteousness? Well, the way that we can hope for that kind of righteousness, I believe it's to have a biblical understanding of what those words mean. What does it mean to be perfect in righteousness in the context of this one place that Paul was writing? First of all, righteousness in the New Testament always is describing a relationship that exists between God and the humans that he's created that is only fully realized when a person trusts in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the one who made atonement for their sins and has praised the, paid the price for their salvation. It is when one comes to faith in Christ that one enters into a righteous relationship with God, not because of what we did last week and not because of what we're going to do the next week, but because we have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's how we get to be righteous. We don't get to be righteous by doing all the right things, although that's part of it, and I'm going to get to that in a moment. But the main and most essential, consistent element in righteousness throughout the New Testament Scriptures is that it is a relationship that is formed between God and his creatures, made possible, possible, only by the work of Jesus Christ. Never possible by our own works, Never possible by our own works, but fully possible and receivable, not attainable, 
through the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit who works inside us. Once we begin to realize that being perfect in, in righteousness has to do primarily with our relationship with God and with others so far as it is up to us. In verse 9 and 10, he describes what this kind of righteousness looks like. Uh, I'm going to read it from a, a little different version than what I read out of earlier. It's described in another book I was reading about a love that overflows more and more with knowledge and full insight. A love that abounds, another translation says. It's, an, it's a love that cannot be contained and so flows out of that which holds it. When we're thinking about righteousness in the New Testament, we are thinking about a loving relationship established by God, received by humanity, and allowed to work within our lives. A kind of love that is like a tree that begins as a mere sapling or even a seed and then grows into a great strong tree. The Christian life in faith is meant to be all about that. It is meant to be us becoming complete in God, but it takes a lifetime and then some. Actually, if you want to be completely perfected and finally perfected continually, the way to do that is to die. Anybody signing up? You know, but there is a sense, truly, and we'll never be fully perfected now, not completely and entirely to the Webster's Dictionary meaning, but we can be perfected so far as it concerns our will. We can decide little by little to so train our lives because of the knowledge we have of God and what God requires and fine-tune our actions so that more than more we actually look more like Christ. We actually think more like Christ. We actually become more like Christ. We become Christ-like in this world. And yet it's a job that is never completed. As long as we realize that, as long as we realize that the main part of perfection is our relationship to Christ, as long as we understand that our real righteousness, yes, does have something to do with what we do. In fact, in the Old Testament, righteousness was attained by being God's people and by following the law, right? It was a works-oriented righteousness. And that's referred to in the New Testament in several spots as well. But the reality is that it's mainly about our relationship with God and secondarily a reflection in people's lives who have been made righteous by trust and faith in Jesus Christ. God declares I'm righteous. Nobody on earth can do that for me, only Jesus. And nobody can take it away from me, only Jesus. Because God says it's true because I am a follower of Christ, trusting in Christ for my salvation and not on my own good works. And you say, so then what is our part in this righteousness thing? Well, we are righteous also when we are acting according to God's will. That's another one of those relative things. But even as failures, so to speak, over and over again, we are also people who, over and over again, find ourselves keeping God's will and following his ways. To the extent that we do that based upon our knowledge and based upon what we have learned and or we become more discerning as Christians about what God wants us. You don't expect someone who's 17 years old to have the mind of Christ completely in them. You expect them to be 17. You also don't expect someone who's 77 years old to have the mind of a 17-year-old or the faith of a 17-year-old or less. You expect 
us all to be developed and growing in this process of righteousness because we receive it and because we're open to the knowledge that God wants to give us. When we come to that part, then we come down to our part a little more literally. I think our part is, can be described in two ways. First of all, we need to be available. It is really hard for God to work in our hearts and minds when we're not available. You know what available is, right? Availability has to do with your time. I don't know how many people I've heard say, well, you know, I really want to be like Jesus, but I just don't have time to read the Bible and study it thoroughly. Really? So how bad do you really want to be like Jesus? I mean, how much time do you think all these teams have spent getting ready for a bowl game? How much time are you going to spend in preparation for Christmas? The cooking, the shopping, the getting everything ready, the sending out the invitations? Compared to the time you get ready to prepare your heart for a new beginning with Jesus Christ. Which gets more time? Now, women, I know it's harder for you because you really are working at Christmas. Men, you just have no excuse, most of you. You got two or three presents to buy, and a couple of them are just extra, right? Like everybody knows, Sally buys the presents for our grandchildren. She tells me how much she spent, what she's bought, and she always tells me the same thing. Ever since Miller was one, we don't need any more presents for the grandkids. And I always say the same thing, best I can remember. I know. I'm still going to go get them something from Papa. It doesn't matter how many things she's bought. I have to buy them something. Yes, I do. And yes, I know I have to buy her something. This I'm clear about. (laughs) But I I don't have to do nearly as much shopping as she does. And I leave her to worry about the money. I just go ahead and buy what I want, and we'll work it out later. That's my part. I'm available to do what I need to be do. But am I that available to attend the Christmas worship services throughout the Christmas season? Am I available to pray, to seek the knowledge of God regularly in my life so that I can understand God? You just can't be like God unless you know who God is, and you can't know who God is by osmosis, by the faith of your spouse or your children or your grandchildren. It's not magic. It don't snap, you don't snap your fingers and it happens. It's an acquired reality that continues to expand and grow as you live. And so I say to you that our part is to be available, and then the last part of our part is to be willing. God forces no one to be his follower. Now, he comes close sometimes. I would say striking Paul blind while he's on a road trip is pretty powerful. But you know, Paul could have still said no. There's always that ability that God leads in us. So our part is not only being available, but it's being willing to grow in the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Now, the second thing he said in this passage of Scripture is a short something. He thanked them for continuing the work of the gospel, which had to do with supporting Paul, continuing the work in the church, and continuing for the church to be willing to grow into the likeness that God called it to be. It's a corporate reality that is basically the same thing as an individual reality, except corporately. Followers of Christ, I believe, God is hoping for churches to grow and transform into all that God wants them to become. I don't think that that ever stops. I think sometimes churches park on the side of the road. I think sometimes individuals park on the side of the road, and they've got enough faith to get them to heaven. That's all they're worried about. Thank you so much. 
I don't believe that's what God hopes for at all. I believe God knows that his churches need to be challenged and they need to meet those challenges. I believe that God knows that when a church is fully committed, they can be even more committed. That's what I believe. And I believe that's what God hopes for during the season as he looks down upon us today and in the days to come. I think Paul expresses it well. We will remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as we come to celebrate that this morning in communion. It is a table that is open. It is not ours. It does not belong to the United Methodist Church, but it is the table of our Lord. If you're here today and you wish to have more knowledge and more experience of the presence of God in your life and you're willing as you receive the elements this morning, you may experience again a refreshing and a renewing sense of God's presence in your life. It's always there. It's always ready. And God is always willing. But are we? Are we ready and are we willing for a fresh experience of Jesus to come into our lives? I invite you to contemplate that in a moment of silent prayer as we get ready to come to this table.